Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful chapter with wonderful news and wonderful hope, we pray that as we think about it together, that you will bless it to us, encourage us, appoint us to the one who stands today and says, all authority has been given to me. Help us to have the right response to him. We pray in his name. Amen. If the Bible's account of the life and death and Jesus ended with the cross, there was no resurrection, then there's no way that we can call it good news. If Jesus is dead, it means that he failed. It means that he lied. It means that he saves no one at all. A fraud. But as the gospel accounts do not end with the lifeless body of Jesus laid to rest in an ancient tomb, and as they tell us that the resurrection of Jesus is that which makes the gospel the good news, today we remember that the good news is wonderfully good news. If the tomb is empty, and the Lord Jesus is risen, then his word is true. Then his promises are real. Then his death was satisfactory. Then his atonement is complete. Then his obedience is perfect. Then his service on behalf of God and for us is acceptable, and his victory total. The resurrection is the great game changer. Because Jesus rose, there is wonderfully good news for the world, and there is wonderfully good news for you. This morning is the end of this series on Matthew 26 to 28, The Road to the Cross, We think beyond the road to the cross. What happened after the cross? We come to chapter 28 and I want you to notice as we consider it together, three great scenes played out for us. Fairly obvious when you look at it, the headings that I've given it. Fairly obvious by which chapter 28 is put together and constructed that we need to note and to take home with us and take with us when we go. First, in verses 1 to 10, there's feet worth touching. It's just before dawn on Sunday morning and the two Marys go to the place where they know Jesus has been entombed. We heard that in the reading this morning. A sudden earthquake signals the descent of an angel who rolls back the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb. His appearance is so dazzling that his presence induces, perhaps unsurprisingly, the immediate loss of consciousness of the guards that have been sent to keep watch over the grave. They become, we are told, like dead men. You can't blame them, really, after the long watch through the night. And the earthquake and the angelic visitation that followed, I'm sure, would render most of us senseless. And that's exactly what happened. 
Uh, Terrifying though it must have been for the guards, however, uh, the message of the angel uh, to the women was one of hope and a message to dispatch immediately to the disciples. Go, come and see, go and tell. And running to tell the disciples, full of joy and fear, they meet Jesus himself. Look what happens, verse 9. Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Here is Jesus himself now in the flesh, risen and alive, standing before them, greeting them, and they fall to the ground, not as the guards did, not stupefied, not senseless, but now full of awe and adoration. They come and they take hold of his feet. You might imagine the moment in your mind's eye. Trembling hands reaching out toward him. Is this the same Jesus whose flesh we saw ripped and torn and pierced? Is this the Jesus who just breathed his last on the cross? Do I dare touch him? What if I reach out and touch him and it's a ghost? He's not real. It's a delusion. It's some grief-induced mirage. Trembling hands. Grasp for the feet and all questions are satisfied. Those feet are real. What a moment. These are the feet that the sinful woman bathed with her tears of joy at having been forgiven. These are the feet at which Mary had sat and learned from her master and as we heard a few weeks ago, anointed with perfume just before he was betrayed. These are the feet the disciples thought beneath them to wash on the Thursday night in the upper room. These are the feet through which Roman nails were driven and they still bear the scars. You see, the message of the resurrection of Jesus is that The humanity of Jesus is still real. The body of Jesus, the same body in which he obeyed and bled and died, is the body in which he is now risen and glorified that sits on the throne of the right-hand side of the power on high. Again and again, the Gospels make this point, don't they? When he stood among the disciples in the upper room, after his resurrection, speaking to Thomas, he showed him his hands and his feet. He said to Thomas, place your hands into the wounds and see, I'm not a ghost. See, the Gospel is not just good news in some vague spiritual sense. It's not an abstract philosophy. The gospel message declares that one day flesh and bones will be raised from the dead. That the physical world of real things, of hands, of feet, of bricks and stone will one day be swept up in a cosmic transformation. Our hope is of a day to come when creation itself will be renewed 
freed from its bondage to corruption and decay and the whole cosmos will be caught up in the freedom of the glory of the children of God that Romans 8 talks about. Paul so very confident when he writes those things. How is Paul so confident? How can he be sure in a real sense that the re- resurrection and the renewal of all things has just begun? Well, here's the answer. Here's Jesus. The new creation has broken in upon us, as it were, into the first century in the resurrected body of Jesus from the grave. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.20, that he is the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead. He is the guarantee that if you trust in him, you will have a body like his. He is the forerunner. He is the prototype. And that body that you will receive will be equipped, suitable for heavenly glory. It's what the resurrection of Jesus guarantees to us. us. And so they clasp his feet in worship. It's an act of profound significance. The object of their adoration is the divine son who lives in everlasting union with real humanity, yet risen and glorified. Here is the highest imaginable response that the risen Jesus deserves. It's the only fitting answer, the only fitting response. What do you do with a Jesus who was dead and is now alive? It's not enough to admit that he lives, just to say, well, yes, he's alive, assent to the fact of it, to offer a grudging concession that the evidence probably means, after all, that he rules. That's not enough. That won't do. What do you do with the Jesus who lives in the same body in which he died? but is now alive again. Well, there's really only one thing to do. He must fall down and worship at his feet. Nothing else is sufficient. Had Jesus died and remained there? Had his bones today be found rotting somewhere in a Middle Eastern tomb? We could never say that he was a good man or a moral teacher. If Jesus is still dead, we should say of him, he is a liar or a lunatic. But since he rose just as he promised, you can trust every word he said. Ask yourself this. If Jesus can overcome the greatest barrier of death itself, to keep his promise. If Jesus can overcome that, then to which of the promises that he made can you now point and say he doesn't have the power to fulfil that promise? To which circumstance in my life can I point to that might represent an insurmountable barrier that he can't help with? If he's overcome death, he's overcome the biggest 
And there is nothing bigger. The man who died and rose is neither a liar or a lunatic, but as the two Marys clearly recognised, he is Lord. He is the Lord of life and the master of death. He is the mighty conqueror of the grave, the only saviour of sinners. And his resurrection, therefore, can never be a mere data point to be acknowledged but it must be a devastating, world-altering, life-changing pivot upon which everything is different. Everything changes. These are feet, feet worth touching. These are feet worth adoring. Secondly, we look at the response, not of faith, but of fear and unbelief. In verses 11 to 15, there are lies worth telling. While the women have gone to report to the disciples the good news that Jesus lives, the guards who have been rendered senseless in this incident by the angelic visitor have a report of their own to make. So the Marys have something to say and the guards have something to say. They have to go tell the bad news to the Jewish authorities. They've been knocked out cold. They've seen nothing at all. When they came to the body, to the tomb, it's open. The body's gone. So a council is called. The elders and the chief priests assemble. And the Roman guards are there as well. You see their dilemma. The guards have been posted there in the first place to prevent a resurrection hoax. Placed outside the tomb to make sure nobody stole the body. But now the guards who should have been an asset to them in preventing the hoax have become a liability requiring a hoax of their own invention. And so a plan is hastily devised. Tell everyone you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body after all. And if Pilate comes after you, you know, for your failure of duty, that you fell asleep while on watch, well, don't worry about that. We'll protect you. And here is a sufficient sum to sweeten the deal. You have to chuckle at Matthew's words here. Sufficient for what? What's this sufficient sum? What's it sufficient for? You can imagine some poor underworker given orders, get the money out of the bag and give it to the nice soldiers. And he's going 10, 20, 40, 50, 100... Is that enough? No, no, more, more. 200, 250, 300. It's amazing how a hefty bribe makes the idea of admitting to falling asleep on duty not so embarrassing after all. It's, of course, a desperate lie and that it's self-evidently false. If the guards had been asleep... How did they know it was the disciples who stole the body? And how did the disciples manage anyway to move this huge stone rolled across the gravesite without waking them from their slumber? As for other theories that have been suggested over the years as alternatives, well, they fare no better. Jesus did not faint on the cross, later to be revived in the cool of the tomb. The spear put an end to that. That the women on the occasion visited the wrong tomb is hardly credible and the idea of a mass hallucination is frankly absurd. 
as one commentator said, the resurrection of Jesus can be dismissed only by a presuppositional worldview that rules out supernatural events. The resurrection of Jesus makes far better sense than any of the theories that attempt to explain it away. So why do they lie? Why do they lie so badly? Here's the answer. Anything to avoid the truth. They lie because they're afraid. They lie because they know that if Jesus is alive, then he is who he said he is. And their lives have to change forever and factor that in and submit to him as Lord. A risen Jesus is a threat. And that is so often, isn't it, the case. That's so what often drives unbelief and the rejection of the gospel. It's not honest intellectually, I can't believe this. It's a moral aversion to the claims of Jesus. If he rose again, then he is a threat to my moral independence. I want to be the final arbiter of what is right and good and acceptable. But if Jesus lives, well then everything he said is true and I must listen to him and frankly I'd rather not. I want to be the God of my own life. And so lies continue to be told after all. To defend my right to be king and lawmaker and the God of my own world, I must keep Jesus in a tomb somewhere at all costs. These are convenient lies, aren't they? Lies we tell in order that we don't have to face up to his claims. But I wonder if the word of God has a way of getting around those lies. Nonetheless, I wonder when the gospel is told and the story is revealed, if it doesn't reveal the motives behind those who have their sophisticated arguments against the gospel and point out to them that ultimately they don't have an argument with the gospel. It's not an intellectual thing, it's a moral thing. They don't want to come to Christ because they love darkness. They love sin. Sinful habits they're pursuing. They can't pursue those things and pursue Christ at the same time. So to rationalise it, something has to go and having Jesus as a risen Lord is the losing choice. See it for what it is. It's not doubt. It's just sheer rebellion against God. It's not doubt. Doubters will find the answer. But those who refuse to believe, they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe. Thirdly, verses 16 to 20, there are commands worth keeping. See how the, sh- the scene shifts once again. The disciples have obeyed the commands of Jesus. They've gone ahead of him to Galilee where they meet him. 
And just like the woman at the tomb, they also worship him. What we need to be sure not to miss is having just exposed the real moral drivers behind the militant unbelief of the Jews, Matthew is quick to show us the tenderness of Jesus toward those who believe but nevertheless have doubts. See, Matthew tells us some of the disciples who were there and who see him, they doubt. They hang back. They're unsure. Um, is this really true? At least at first, there's, there's an uncertainty among them, among the 11. Some of them, he doesn't say who, some of them doubt. But look at Jesus. He doesn't give a word of rebuke to this ragtag bag of unsure, uncertain disciples. He just says to all of them, Go, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Isn't this remarkable when you think about it? Here's the risen Jesus standing before them and yet they're doubting what they're seeing. And yet he bestows upon these disciples a command to go with the gospel to the world. Sometimes you might have the feeling, oh, you know, my faith isn't strong enough. I couldn't go to the world and tell the gospel. My faith isn't perfect. My faith isn't free from doubts and fears. But Jesus doesn't care about that. He says to some who doubt, just go, make disciples. Even these doubting disciples are commanded, given the message Now, there are in some cases genuine causes to our doubts and these ought to be examined and thought through and answered. But don't let doubt get in the way of obedience to the commands of Jesus. If you're struggling with doubt, just obey him and you'll find your faith will prosper. And so we note the way this command of Jesus is bracketed within the passage. Here are the implications of the resurrection. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. You can't get higher than that. And it's out of this authority that Jesus has been given, he says, now as you go, go make disciples. The whole world, as John Wesley said, is my parish. Go, because all authority has been given to him. Now that he has purchased the salvation of sinners by his death and has risen in victory, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is his. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Respond. The authority of Jesus is matched with the tender presence of Jesus too. It's not that he sends them out facing an impossible task. Do your best. See you later. I'm off somewhere else. All the best. Good luck. No, it's go. For I am with you to the very end of the age. 
Friends, because Jesus lives, we have work to do. We have good news to share. We have a world to reach with news that sin has been paid for, that death has been undone, that hope and light and life have dawned upon a world that has nothing to offer. Because Jesus lives, we go in obedience to the command of the one who has total authority. And because Jesus lives, we go in confidence that the one who has such authority has bound himself to us in such a way that he will never forsake us. The world must hear because he lives and we can tell them because the living Lord has all authority and when we tell them, we will never stand alone when we open our mouths to speak. He is with us. Fear not. So as we close, how will you respond to this news of the empty tomb, of the risen Jesus who claims all authority, remembering there's no such thing as a no response. Not to respond is a response. And the options are these. On the one hand, resist him. Throw up your argument after argument. Protect your own rebellion, your own space, your own lordship. I want to be king of my life. On the other hand, bow down in worship before him. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. Bow down before him and rise up to tell the world the good news. See, there's no wriggle room, is there, in the text. There's no third option. It's either believe and go or stick with the lie that was told and leave it there and face the consequences. There's nothing in between. He's either, as C.S. Lewis said, liar, lunatic or Lord. And if he is Lord, he is that forever and ever. Which one will it be for you on Easter Sunday? The Lord of life, risen from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we bring you thanks. We bring you great thanks that we have such a one, such a saviour, we are grateful to men and women who laid down our li- their lives for us in war. But they never came back from the dead. We are honour bound to offer you everything we have. For if you are Lord, then you are Lord of all. And if you're not Lord of all, then you're not Lord at all. Please grant us the response we need today. 
not just to put our faith in him and trust him and believe his word, but also join his side, being a good news carrier, a disciple maker, one who's involved in telling the news. We have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right, a story of peace and mercy, a story of truth and light. Grant us opportunity. Grant us the privilege of sharing this news with a world in desperate need and people who so need to hear. We pray this in his name. Amen.